Amen. Well, we are thankful for the uh, worship that we've uh, experienced thus far, and um, I'm always excited for this part of the worship service. Uh, being a preacher, I love to uh, expound God's Word, and uh, I look forward to our text here today. Uh, so let me invite you to take your Bible to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter number 2, Ephesians chapter number 2, and uh, our text this morning is going to be verse 11 down through verse number 16. And uh, we're picking up where we left off. We were on a brief pause last week, and now we're picking up back in verse 11, and we're going to come down through verse number 16. And the title of the message this morning is The Union of God's One People. The Union of God's One People. And so let's read our text today, and uh, we will see what Paul is bringing out to our attention, what the Lord has given uh, to us in this text. Notice in Ephesians 2, 2.11, he says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What we find in this text that Paul brings to our attention is the union of God's one people. Now we might wonder why this is necessary. Do we see various forms of division between people in our world? I think we'd all answer that question as obvious. You look at our world today and you'll see division after division. There's religious division, political division, cultural division, all sorts of different kinds of division. You have Republicans versus Democrats. You've got covenant theology versus dispensational theology like we uh, talked about in Sunday school. You've got Android versus Apple. Marvel versus DC, if you know what I'm talking about. Caffeinated coffee versus decaf coffee. That, to me, has become a, quite a divisive thing. I've seen some people want to fight about that. And the list could go on and on, right? Then we get into the sports realm and the rivalries that are bound. Uh, and they're somewhat entertaining if you watch the rivalries. But uh, you get into the college football and basketball season, and you'll see some hostility between some fans, right? Duke versus North Carolina, Kentucky versus Louisville, and so on. When I was in middle school, our dad's job took us to Bloomington, Indiana, from our home near Lexington, Kentucky. And we learned real quick that they are diehard uh, Indiana fans, basketball fans. Uh, one thing that you don't do up there is wear Kentucky apparel to an Indiana basketball game. You know why? Because you'll stick out like a sore thumb, number one, but you can just see the hostility in their eyes. Now, I've also been warned in coming to Arkansas, don't go up to an Arkansas game wearing a UK, uh, UK shirt. Uh, so I, I'm not going to test the waters there. I will blend in if I go. I'll buy an Arkansas shirt and wear it. 
Just don't tell my Kentucky friends. You look at all sorts of different kinds of division that abounds in human history, and the ones I mentioned, some of them are just superficial, we know. But when it comes to the world of Paul, the Ephesians, and the early church, it really was no different than today in the realm of serious divisions. The Greeks considered the rest of the world to be barbarians. The Romans thought that they were superior to every other culture. The Jews looked at Gentiles as if they were dogs. There was cultural, there was religious, there was racial division to great degrees. And that was very problematic, especially in the days of the early church, which is why Paul addresses this very issue. And that really focuses in on the tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, we'll point out in a minute why there was such a major division between these two groups, but this division was heavily problematic for the early church. You'll find Acts 15 gives a lot of detail to the early church trying to wrestle with this issue of the Jew and the Gentile, and you'll see it through Galatians and through uh, other portions of the Scriptures. But the point Paul brings to the Ephesians' attention here in this passage is that this division between the Jew and Gentile, it no longer exists in Christ. What once was a great division between two people groups is no longer a barrier. Why? Because there is only one church in Christ. There is not a Jewish church and a Gentile church, separate being two churches. There is only one church, one people of God. God has one people. And so who are those people? Those people are anyone and everyone who is in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or if you're a Gentile or whatever your ethnic background may be. If you are in Christ, you are one with all others who are in Christ. So what does Paul make plain about this truth of God's one people? Now, notice with me, number one in our notes, we look at the past distinction of God's people. This is what Paul brings to the forefront concerning the Gentiles of this Ephesians church. The past distinction of God's people. And I, and I point this out by way of the two things that Paul mentions here in, in broad, broad, broad scheme. Firstly, there was a distinction regarding the circumcision. There was a distinction regarding the circumcision. Now, we note that Paul begins in verse 11. He says, remember. And he'll start verse 12 the same way. Remember. Remember. And we know that when Paul says to remember, it's, it's for a reason, because we gain appreciation for who we are in Christ by remembering where we are without Him. That's what brings us thanksgiving and joy and remembering all that Christ has done. Now, Paul had already pointed out to them their past uh, sin before their conversion. We saw that in Ephesians 2 and in verse 1 through 3 of who they were before their conversion. He showed them plainly that God alone, through Christ alone, had effectually and eternally changed them. He had made them alive when they were dead in sin. But now Paul is not focusing on their past before regeneration. He's not just repeating that same topic, although it ties together. He's reminding them of their past before reconciliation, both to God and to man. You see, reconciliation is twofold. It is both vertical and lateral. Reconciliation brings us into a peaceful relationship 
personally with God, but also a peaceful relationship with man, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now notice verse 11. Paul tells them to remember, at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Right here, Paul points out the past distinction between two groups of people, the Gentiles and the Jews. The Gentiles were called or identified as those of the uncircumcision. They were called this by those who are identified as the circumcision, which is the Jews. One group was uncircumcised, which is the Gentiles. One group was circumcised, which is the Jews. And this distinction was prominent in ancient Israel and even in the days of the early church because the Jews would view those who are uncircumcised, who are Gentiles, as a lesser people, as an unworthy people, not deserving the same respect that the Jews had. For example, there's one rabbinic writer who tells of an incident that explains that Jewish attitude towards Gentiles. A certain Gentile woman came to Rabbi Eliezer and, he, and, she, and, and confessed that she was sinful and told him that she wanted to become righteous. She wanted to accept, be accepted into the Jewish faith because she had heard that the Jews were near to God. Well, the rabbi was said to have responded to her, no, you cannot come near and just shut the door upon her. Now, we see traces of this in the early church. You remember when... Uh, the Jews' response to Peter when he had gone into the house of Cornelius, who was a Gentile. And he preached the gospel with them and to them, and he fellowshiped with them. In Acts 11, in verse 2 through 3, we read, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, notice this, the circumcision party, the Jews, criticized him. Why are they criticizing him? They're criticizing him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. You see, to the Jewish mindset... To even have a meal with a Gentile, you became unclean in their eyes. That's how stark this division was. Now, why was this distinction so important in that day? And how did this distinction come about? To understand what Paul is saying here, it's important to have some understanding of the Jewish roots and how God worked through those people under the Old Covenant. So I want us to go backwards in our Bible for a moment and read this passage in Genesis chapter number 17. Genesis chapter number 17 and look with me at verse 9 through verse 14. This takes us back to what is, uh, what is commonly called um, the father of the Jews, Abraham, right? He's often called the father of the Jews. But bear in mind that Abraham, he was just a pagan that God called out of paganism. So you understand that God has just established, he's established this people and, and they've been known as Jews. And there's a distinction that he gave to them. In Genesis 17, 9 14, notice this. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout your, their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. 
Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, right in this text, you can plainly see where the act of circumcision was first introduced to the people of God. And you can also see why it was so important to the Jews. The act of circumcision was the sign of the covenant between God and his people. Now, the nature of the sign suggests that it's intended to focus on the importance of Abraham's offspring, the royal line that would be, uh, that would, that, that through which the blessing would come. We think of Abraham, he was chosen, he was called into a special relationship with God, which passed on into his own offspring. And so the covenant God made with Abraham is that through him, all families of the earth would be blessed through his seed. Mark the Jewish people as God's people of promise from Abraham. And on the contrast to that, uncircumcision was a mark of a profane person. It was the mark of someone who was not among God's covenant community and people. But notice with me what happens here. What was supposed to be a sign of grace and mercy extended to the Jews as a mark of the covenant God has made for them grew into a sign of pride arrogance, and hostility. The Jews failed to realize the true purpose of physical circumcision. They began to think of it as the seal of their salvation. Since they are Jews, since they are circumcised, since they have the sign of the covenant given to Abraham, that this automatically makes them partakers of God's eternal blessing. But what we find is that circumcision did not save them, It's never saved anyone. You know why? Circumcision is a work. And did you know that salvation has always been of grace, even under the old covenant? There is no point in history in which works have ever uh, validated or given us salvation. In fact, circumcision was a picture of what was actually to take place in the heart of man, even in the Old Testament. We read of this principle. Deuteronomy 10 and verse 16. God said in the old covenant law, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So so they need a heart change here. And we will see the same principle applied in the New Testament here in just a few moments. But with this simple distinction in their past as Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, there was a great problem for them. Even at the time of this writing, this mindset of this physical distinction was prevalent. Many of the Jews thought that the Gentiles, sure, they could be saved, but they still needed to get circumcised. They still needed to keep this aspect of the old covenant. And keep in mind that the Ephesian church is predominantly Gentile with some Jews. This is why Paul writes this for them. 
But notice also letter B. Not only was there a distinction regarding the circumcision, there was a distinction regarding the covenants. A distinction regarding the covenants. Now Paul says again here in verse 12, he says, remember, Paul wants them to remember that, that this differing status of their flesh, they also have a, a, a differing status in just the realm of their separation from all that came through God and His people. They had no direct connection or revelation concerning Christ and the covenants given by God. Now, in verse 12, Paul breaks down several aspects of this that we'll look at as they all come under this umbrella. Notice the first thing he points out. He says, they were at that time, remember, at that time, Gentiles, you were separated from Christ. You were separated from Christ. Now, we look at that and say, well, that's true of every man, right? Yes, in a, in a, in a salvific sense, in the realm of salvation. But what Paul is, was gearing at here is more about the fact that they had no revelation or expectation of a coming Christ, Messiah, as the hope to bring salvation. Notice that Gentiles in their past, they were not near and did not know the promises of Christ. Now, what does, what does the word Christ mean? Before I studied anything, I just you know, thought that was Jesus' last name. Anybody else think that? I did. You know, we all have last names. I thought Jesus Christ, well, that's Christ's last name. No, Jesus is a title. Jesus is his name, uh, which means Jehovah is salvation, but Christ is a title. Now, the word for Christ here literally refers to the fulfiller of Israelite expectation of a deliverer. So it can be translated as the anointed one, the Messiah, or the Christ. We're used to accustomed using the word Christ most, most, most uh, frequently. You see, it was the Christ who was the expectation of the Jews for centuries. Christ is the Messiah in whom they were looking for and whom they still are looking for because they reject Jesus as the Christ. When Andrew realized that Jesus was the Christ, who he was, remember he went and found Peter, his brother, what did he tell him? In John 1.41, he goes to Peter, who's named Simon at that point. He says, we have found who? The Messiah. We found him, Peter, which, is, which means Christ. And so this was the expectation. They're looking for the Messiah. So why was the Messiah expected? Because he was prophesied to come by God. Where and how was the Messiah prophesied to come? Through Jewish prophets recorded in Jewish scriptures. Now, I want you to think for a moment. The Jews, even in their darkest seasons, always had this hope and expectation of what God had promised them, that a Messiah was coming, a Messiah was coming. There was a hope coming to them. Consider that the Gentiles had no such hope, had no such expectation, had no such word from God. They truly were separated from Christ, the expectation of a deliverer Messiah. But notice secondly that he points out here, they were also alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, from the commonwealth of Israel. Now, what is this commonwealth of Israel? The word for commonwealth refers to the right to be a member of a sociopolitical entity. Now, the state of Kentucky is called a commonwealth. Every state, in a sense, is its own commonwealth. 
Kentucky has its own laws and regulations and practices and citizenship. I used to be a citizen of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. But now I got my license changed and my identity's elsewhere. I'm a citizen of Arkansas, the state of Arkansas. I belong here. I don't belong to Kentucky. I can't go there and vote. I can't go there and, and do all the things that Kentuckians have the privilege of doing as, 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 as members, as citizens of Kentucky. I'm no longer a member there. I'm here. And when you look at Israel, it was its own sociopolitical economy with Jehovah as their God. They had their own citizenship, their own civil laws, their own ceremonial worship, their own land, their own cities. Their whole spiritual and societal structure under the old covenant was to set them apart as God's people, showing God to be their sovereign. Gentiles, by default, were not part of this commonwealth. Gentiles, by default, were not part of this commonwealth. You had to be a Jew, and if you were a male, you had to be circumcised. Now, this does not mean that Gentiles, certain Gentiles could not become part of that commonwealth because we see examples of that. We have a few. Remember a lady named Rahab? She was not a Jew, but she became a Jew. In fact, she's in the lineage of our Savior, of our Jewish Messiah. Remember Ruth, the Moabitess? She was not a Jew, but became a Jew. So you see, there was that, but it was few and far between. It was not like there was this big influx of Gentiles uh, 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 becoming part of Israel. Uh, What we see is that generally Gentiles were alienated, meaning that they were strangers and foreigners from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers to God's special and saving revelation given through the Jews. And as strangers, they were looked at with contempt and not immediately. Welcome. They could not worship as the Jews did, being allowed into the tabernacle and temple, even if they believed in the one true Jehovah God. Now notice that Paul further brings out, not only were these Gentiles alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, notice what he says next, they were strangers to the covenants of promise. And this is key. How is it that God has worked out his purposes in the world to bring about redemption and his kingdom? It is through covenants that he has given to his people. Now you say, what is a covenant? The word used here for covenant has various insights. And in the Greek lexicon, it can refer to a compact or contract. It can also refer to a last will and and testament. In the New Testament, usually it refers to a contract or compact, but it can be used any other way. Uh, I put a note here for you from Lexham Theological Wordbook, which I thought was a good description It says, a covenant is a legally binding agreement between two parties. It is often solemnized or ratified by an oath or other means and usually places demands on one or both parties. Covenants played a major role in the ancient Near East, which made them a useful way for God to relate to his people and demonstrate his commitment to them. God's covenant with Israel is the primary concept used to describe his relationship with his people. Now, as you look at the covenant, some were conditional, some were not conditional, unilateral, performed only by God on behalf of his people. Just to give you a few that you'll read of in Scripture, we read of the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant given to Abraham concerning his offspring that we read. Some of, part of that would concern the land of Canaan, future blessing for his people and protection. 
We see a covenant given through Moses, which was concerning the law of God and Israel's commonwealth and the worship of Jehovah. We see a covenant given to David concerning the future king from his lineage that would reign, which would be the Messiah. We see a new covenant that we've been studying in Sunday school, promised in Jeremiah, that assured a permanent salvation and forgiveness. These all were covenants of promise. What did they promise? They promised the Messiah who would come and fulfill them fully and finally for his people. Now, so much more could be said about this. I don't have time to get into it. But here's the point Paul is making. The Gentiles were strangers to these covenants of promise. They were strangers to them. They had no claim to them. They, they, they came for and through Israel. We read how Paul makes mention of this in Romans 9 and verse 4 through 5. He says of Israel, they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. We see that this all originates with God's own covenant people, right? What kind of state did this leave the Gentiles in? Here's the state it left them in. Paul says they were in a state of having no hope and were without God in the world. Now, here's something you'll recognize as you read your Old Testament. Do you read anywhere of a great commission to the Jewish people to convert the Gentile world to Judaism in the Old Testament? No. Now, by all means, the Jews were a light of the glory of God, meant to be a light of His truth, but there is no commission to, to go reach the world with this, with, this, with this Judaic system. You see, Gentiles were lost in their darkness and condemned for their sin, having no revelation of this Savior that comes through God alone. And so Gentiles followed the desires of their evil hearts, Worshipping the false gods they had been accustomed to. Paul says to the Gentile church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 12, 2, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. And so I close these two verses showing you, this is the past distinction of God's people. The Gentiles had nothing to do with God had nothing to do with all the promises that came through God's people from Abraham onward. That brings us to number two. We see the hopeless condition of the Gentile world, but that brings us to number two. That, that notice, that the, the, notice the purposed salvation of God's people. The purposed salvation of God's people. We come to verse number 13 for a moment. And notice that Paul's making a transition here, and I'll emphasize this in a minute. But notice he says, but now in Christ Jesus. I want to pause there for a moment and just consider this, that all that we read and study in the Old Testament regarding Israel and the covenants leads up to one person. And Who is that person? Jesus Christ. Jesus. Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus. Christ is the centerpiece. 
He's the thread woven from beginning to end because he's the promised Messiah. And as the promised Messiah, guess what Jesus came to do? He came into the world to save who? His people from their sins. He came to save his people. This is what was said of him to Joseph regarding Mary's pregnancy. Matthew 1.21, the angel says to Joseph, She will bear a son, and you will, shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Christ is a Savior who saves. He does not attempt to save, but he truly saves his people to the uttermost. The Jews expected their Messiah to bring salvation, although not exactly as they imagined it, as you read onward. Jesus, he was born as a Jewish Messiah to fulfill the Jewish promises given to the Jews. It was known that. Jesus said to the woman Samaria, salvation is from the Jews. And this truth is seen in the New Testament. As God confirms through Jewish Christian writers that Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenants God made to his people. Notice this. Christ is the promised seed that fulfills the covenant given to Abraham. Galatians 3, 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. The New Testament sheds light on the Old Testament, friend. So understand that, that Christ is the fulfillment of that covenant. Also, Christ is the promised heir of David, that he would be the king come from his line. Paul speaking of David, as in Acts 13, 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Paul goes on to say, of all the promises of God, all you read of his promises, they point to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1, 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. It is clear what Christ came to do. He came to save his people. He came to fulfill God's covenants that he brought and and gave. Yet, here's what we see. This is where I'm transitioning, all right, to this. Although there were some Jews saved and continue to be saved, the Jewish people as a whole rejected Jesus Christ. They rejected him. The very Messiah they longed for and looked for, they they, they rejected him. What do we find the Jews shouting? Crucify him! Crucify him! They said to Pilate, we have no king but who? Caesar. Christ is not our king, come from David's line. Christ is not the prophet like unto Moses. Christ is not the deliverer that was promised to come. As John the Apostle says in John 1.11, he came to his own and his own people, what? Did not receive him. So Christ's own physical people rejected him. And some may look at that, well, if they were his people, did he fail to save his people, something he said he was going to do, since he did not save all of his Jewish brethren? This brings us to the real question. Who are the people Christ came to save? Who are the people Christ came to save? Would those people only be the physical Jews of Abraham's lineage? And this is the point Paul makes with this entire text. 
Notice this, letter B, God purposed that Gentiles, as well as Jews, be His people. God purposed that Gentiles be His people. Notice what He says in verse 13. He says, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Who is the you here? It is the Gentile believers. Now, while the church in Ephesus would have had some Jews, it was predominantly Gentile, and they all needed to hear this truth, as we'll see in a moment. Christ has brought salvation not to the Jew only, but also to the Gentiles. In fact, what you find woven into the covenants given to Israel concerning the Messiah, and throughout other prophets in the entirety of the Old Testament, God has always, from eternity past, chosen and purposed to save people from the entirety of the world. Not just Jews, but people of every tongue, every language, every ethnicity, all all across this great world, including the Gentiles. So you understand that that God has a chosen people all over this world beyond every boundary and ethnicity. Now what does the covenant to Abraham say in Genesis 12, 3? I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you Jewish families of the earth shall be blessed. Is that what it says? He says all families of the earth shall be blessed. This shows the extensive nature of God's plan. And as Paul quotes the prophet Hosea in Romans chapter 9, that great discourse sheds a lot of light on this topic, but Romans 9 and verse 25 and 26, he says, As indeed says Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said of them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. You see what's happened here. God has intended to make Gentiles his people all along. All along. Now notice he says we've been brought near. What exactly we've been brought near unto? Everything we were far from before. That Paul just mentioned. They were far from Christ, but now they know him. They know him. They didn't have true knowledge of the Messiah to come, but now they genuinely, personally know him. They were far from from Israel, but now they are partakers of Israel. They were far from the covenants, but now they are blessed in the covenants. They were far from God, but now they are God's people. And to point this out, I want to read from read from 1 Peter for a moment. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9 through 12, or really 9, 9 and 10. But notice this. 1 Peter 2, Verse 9 and 10, he says to these Christians, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Did you see what Peter is making here, this distinction? He's writing to not just Jewish Christians, but Gentile Christians. And he's speaking to them just as God spoke to Israel in times past. That these believers, they are a holy nation. A peculiar people. He uses the same kind of language. And this is the truth of Scripture. That a true Jew before God is one who is in Christ. It is no longer about the sign of physical circumcision but only the seal of spiritual circumcision of the heart. You say, where do you get that, Pastor? Romans 2, 28 and 29. Listen to what Paul says. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You see, this is what matters here, friend. The Jews thought their physical circumcision sealed them as the eternal people of God, but that is not the case. One must be born again, circumcised in the heart. By the Holy Spirit of God. And understand this. That all who have experienced such circumcision of the heart. Are indeed true Jews. Even the Gentiles. And by means of this. Gentiles no longer are true Gentiles. In the realm of that division. Notice that Peter goes on to tell these Gentile believers. To don't act like the Gentiles do. Why does he say that? Because he's using Gentiles to categorize the outside world who does not know God. But they know God. And so understand that, Christian, today, you are a true Jew. You are among the Israel of God. And you partake in all the blessings God has promised his people. Now, how is it that the Gentiles have been brought near to what they were separated from? What does Paul say here? He says they've been brought near how? By the blood of Christ. You see, Christ's blood atoned for all of God's people, Jew and Gentile. It atoned for every single person who believes. And just as God had chosen Israel as his people, so also he has chosen Gentiles as his people. Understand this, that God's unconditional election brought to pass the atonement not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. So therefore, when Christ died on the cross for his people, he atoned for all of his people. Jew and Gentile. Christ did not fail to save his true Israel. For not all who were physically Jewish are true Israel. Romans 9, again, gives light on this. In verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. You see, true Israel are those whom God has chosen and called Jew and Gentile. And Paul will give an example of Esau, and others says an example that 
Not everyone, just because you're physically from the line of Abraham, means that you are part of the blessing of what it is to be true Israel. True Israel are those whom God has chosen and called and believed. It is those who partake of the new covenant of grace by the blood of our Lord. Hebrews 9.15. We'll get to this in Sunday school soon, but look at this. Therefore, he is, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant so that the Jews may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. No. He says, so that those who are what? Called. Those who are called, that is every believer, may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You understand that the new covenant brought a full and final redemption. Christ, before his work on the cross, established the Lord's Supper. What did he say of the cup? This is what? This is the new, this is the blood of my covenant, the new covenant, which is shed for many. And you understand that, that, that Christ's blood has settled the salvation of his people. This redemption makes them new and brings them together as one Israel of God by faith. Now to further show this, look at Galatians chapter 6 for a moment. Galatians chapter 6, go backwards just one page. And look at verse 15 and verse 16. This essentially is the argument of all of Galatians. <laughs> all believers are one people. And we're going to close with that here in just a moment. But you look at Galatians 5 and verse, excuse me, 6 and verse 15 and 16. Notice what he closes with. He says, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. What did Paul say of those who are in Christ? What are they? A new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. But notice how he continues. And as for all who walk by this rule, what rule? The rule of being justified by faith alone, of being a new creation in Christ. Circumcision makes no difference, Jew or Gentile. As for those who walk by this rule... Peace and mercy be upon them and upon what? The Israel of God. Christians, understand this. All of God's people by faith are the true Israel of God. And many today want to shun that, oh, that's replacement theology. No, it's not. It's fulfillment theology. God promised that the Gentiles would be grafted in. And so you understand that God's still saving Gentiles, still saving Jews, and they are one people together, the one Israel of God who he expresses his promises unto. And here's the thing, Christian, for us today. I know this is, a lot of this has been academic and what this is relating to the covenants and who we are in Christ, but do you know why this statement, but now in Christ Jesus, should cause you and I to rejoice? Who in here is a physical Jew? Anybody? You know what that means? We're Gentiles. You know what that means? Verse 11 and 12 was our hopeless lost state. No connection to Christ. No connection to the covenants. No connection to God. And were it not for God's purpose to save Jew and Gentile in Christ... We would be lost in darkness, dead in our sin, condemned to eternal judgment. 
But now in Christ, by His blood, He has brought us together unto Himself. I rejoice in this truth this morning. I pray that you will too. That brings me to number three, and lastly, we see the present unification of God's people. We've seen the past distinction of God's people. Used to be a distinction, right? Jew, Gentile, Old Covenant, all that sort of thing. We see the purpose, salvation of God's people, that God all along purposed to bring Gentiles in to save them and make one Israel, one people of God. There are not two peoples of God. There's just one. And now Paul expounds this present unification of God's people. Notice with me letter A that Christ has reconciled Jew and Gentile to one people. One people. What else would be the result of Gentiles becoming the people of God? Becoming Jews, spiritually. Becoming the Israel of God. This means that there is no longer this division between Jew and Gentile when they're in Christ. Jesus brought peace to both groups and united them together as one. Now look at verse 14. Paul says, for he himself is our peace. Who is our peace? It is Christ. He has not only brought peace, but he himself is our peace. Think of this. What is it that unites us together today? It's Christ. You came here today because of one person. And it better not be me. It's Christ. There's a lot of, there's a lot of Christians that they go to every church just because of the preacher. You come because of Christ. Go to a church where Christ is preached, where Christ is truly worshipped biblically and soundly. It is about Christ. It's about his person and work. You see, Jesus alone has brought peace to his people by reconciling them together in one body. And so Paul wrote to the Colossians this in Colossians 3.15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. That's about peace in the body flowing from their hearts because of who they are in Him. For this reason, there should not be hostility or division between God's people, especially over ethnic differences. All believers are one people of God. Notice what Paul says. He's our peace who has made us both one. You'll see that repeated. Us both one. Us both one. You see a union. The two people have become one people under one shepherd. Jesus Christ. You remember what Jesus said in his ministry regarding his sheep in John 10, 16. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. He's talking about sheep outside the bounds of Israel where he was. Those who are scattered abroad, both Jews and Gentiles. And how has Christ made these two people into one people? Well, Paul gives insight into the specific nature of this union and what happened to unite them together. In verse 14, he says, He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, This wall of separation was a dividing barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles. Any kind of wall is going to separate people, right? We even do that relationally. You ever have somebody, you put up a wall, and you just, you know, you don't don't talk to them, not going to fellowship with them. There's a separation there. 
Well, there was this serious wall between Jew and Gentile. There was a physical wall, if we look at it symbolically, from in the temple who could enter it. The Gentiles had a separate lesser area for them called the court of the Gentiles. They weren't allowed into where the Jews were. In fact, there was an inscription on the wall of the outer courtyard of the Jerusalem temple warning Gentiles that they would only have themselves to blame for their death if they passed beyond it into the inner courts. So Gentiles, you enter in beyond this wall, death, and it will be all your fault. So there was that wall physically, and the temple was still standing, so we keep that in mind. There's a wall spiritually, as we've seen, with the Gentile separation from the covenant promises and ceremony of worship. There was a wall relationally, as the Jews disdained the Gentiles, and the Gentiles disdained the Jews. And truly, the old covenant system barred the two groups. And what did it cause? Paul says, hostility. Hostility between them. But what's Christ done? He has broken down the wall. He tore it down. He removed it. Broke it down. So that there's now a clear connection and unity for both sides. Christ has reconciled the two together. And you'll notice further in verse 15 how Christ has broken down this wall. He has done so by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And this truly is the main wall Paul is talking about. The law of commandments expressed in ordinances points us to the Mosaic administration, especially of that ceremonial commandments. The Jews had strict instructions concerning their worship, sacrifices, cleanliness, holy days, feasts. All of these ceremonial laws pointed to one person. Guess who they pointed to? Jesus Christ. So all of those things, they were shadows, they were pictures of the one who's going to come and fulfill it all. As you get to Hebrews 10, 1, you see they were shadows. And so what has Christ done by his sacrifice? He has fulfilled them and thus abolished them. The word for abolishing here refers to cause something to be unproductive. In other words, all those things that Jews are doing and used to do, they don't mean anything. They don't mean anything. This is what the Hebrews book of Hebrews points us to. It's what it's all about. It's that Christ is the fulfillment of that whole Jewish system, and thus by his death, he has done away with those ordinances that pointed to him and were a division between the Jew and Gentile. Now, Christ took care of that on the cross, spiritually, but God did away with that physically in 70 AD when he brought judgment on Jerusalem eradicating the temple, leaving it as if it had not been there in the first place. Now, to what point has Christ done this? Not only to our reconciliation to God, but to our brothers and sister, to God's people. Notice that he says that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. This reveals to us the reality that every person in Christ are the children of God, and there is no distinction between them. Look at one more passage with me. I'm almost done. Galatians 3. Galatians 3, 27 through 29. Notice what he says. For as many as you have been, as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one. Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, 
then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You see it? I hope you see it this morning. It's so plain. There's one people of God without, regardless of ethnic differences. And this is a truth many Christians need to understand even today. Because there are still churches that do not want to have diversity in their church based on skin color and other things of that nature. If there's one thing that irks me in my soul, it's that. It's that. You know why? Because ethnicity, background, that sort of thing, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Why? Because Christ came to save his people. And his people are Jew and Gentile of people all over the entirety of the world. There's only one church. And it's the people of God. There's no white church. There's no black church. There's no Jewish church. There's just the church. One together. Just the church. And God's people must worship together, making no fleshly distinction. We are united together in Christ and worship Christ together. And we will do this for all of eternity, friend. Get a glimpse into heaven in Revelation 5, 9 and look at this. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Heaven will be an innumerable multitude of people from every background, every ethnicity on earth. Tony Marita rightly said, diversity in the church is a glorious demonstration of the work of Christ. It is to be celebrated as, a picture, as it pictures heaven. It demonstrates one new man. And this is certainly true. This is what Christ's reconciliation has brought to his people. But not only did it bring reconciliation for us between each other, Jew, Gentile, whatever our cultural or ethnic differences, Christ has reconciled Jew and Gentile to one God, as you see in verse 16. Look at verse 16, and he says, And might reconcile us both to God. To God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, truly understand this. Being reconciled to God is the first cause of being reconciled to each other. The reconciliation is twofold. It is to God and it is to man. And Paul continues that statement and he, and he shows us that there is no Jew who does not need to be reconciled to God, just as there is no Gentile who does not need to be reconciled to God. Do you understand that the physical Jews today, they're just as any other nation who needs a missionary to reach them with the gospel of Christ. They're not saved just because they're Jewish. Any more than a Gentile is saved by being good or different. Both are dead in their sin. And both live in hostility towards God and each other. Jews were not saved simply because they were Jewish. Jesus rebuked that strongly in John 8 when the Pharisees said, Well, we're Abraham's seed. And Jesus goes on to say, No, you're children of the devil. Doesn't matter if you're Jewish. You're a child of the devil because you reject Christ. And that applies to everyone. 
Every Jew and every Gentile is at enmity with God until they are converted unto faith alone in Christ, the only Savior, the only Messiah. And how did this reconciliation come? What has it done? Paul says here he brought it through the cross, through the cross, and thereby killing the hostility. You see, our reconciliation to God and to men is all through the working of Christ and not of ourselves. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.18, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You see, God gave us reconciliation to himself through his Son, and that has killed the hostility. It has killed the hostility towards God that we once had, but it also kills the hostility towards our brothers and sisters over ethnic and other various differences. Now, there's much with this text we have unpacked, and more, certainly more could be said. The central point we must not miss here is that all of God's people are one people in Christ. There is no Jew-Gentile distinction. There's one people of God, not two. And Christ has united us together only by way of his blood sacrifice. And today I encourage us as Gentile believers, we must praise God for this and look upon our fellow believers as family in Christ. And you better get used to them. You're going to spend eternity with them. You're going to spend eternity with them. We must not be divisive in our hearts towards others based on ethnic differences or any other kind of difference. Even if you disagree on a theological point that's secondary, talk about it, but love each other. God made all people of one blood. We're all men. We bleed the same. But even more importantly, he has united his people by his blood. One people together. So let us rejoice in this unity of God's one people. And today, if you do not know Christ, perhaps you're not sure about that. That's the most important thing. There is no salvation except in Christ alone. If you're not sure of your salvation, I'd be happy to talk with you about it. But I can tell you one thing, that Christ alone saves sinners. And if your hope is in anything or anyone else, it's in the wrong place. It must be in Christ, and believing on him is essential for that. Let us stand to our feet as we prepare for a closing song. <clears throat> our Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning and thank you for this text of scripture that we've looked at. We're thankful so much, Lord, for your eternal plan of redemption and what you brought to pass through Christ. That the division between Jew and Gentile is no longer and Paul gives us this text. He gives it to that church as a cause of remembering so that they may rejoice and know who they are in Christ, that Jews and Gentiles are one. And may we take that principle and truth and rejoice in it and put it into practice as well, that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. There is to be no distinction in any kind of outward form. But may we together love you, serve you, and worship you in spirit and in truth of your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name.